girl, Ned. She was in wonderful health when last I saw her. I can't answer for her now. You'll answer for her now. Where is she? Rooster! Make a run for it! I got Maddie! Changy too! Well, Rooster, will you give us a road? I have business elsewhere. Farrell, you and your brother stand clear. I got no interest in you today. Stand clear and you won't get hurt. What's your intention? You think one on four is a dog fall? I mean to kill you in one minute, Ned. Or see you hanged in Fort Smith at Judge Barker's convenience. Which will it be? I call it bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch! I had done a few films. I had done El Dorado. I had done uh, The Glory of the Guys. I had done uh, Before the Godfather. I think The Godfather was like my fifth or sixth film. I had done a few films. You worked with John Wayne. And John Wayne, yeah. John Wayne. What was he like? You. He was... He was a piece of work. He was... Uh, I enjoyed it. It took a little while, you know, because he'd... Um, he tried to get you intimidated, and and we we became pretty close, but only because he knew I was like a half-ass stuntman, and that's what he liked. Didn't matter. And um, and he uh, he would really try to intimidate you, you know. Like so, the first week was me and him, and and I come out of this, you know, the neighborhood playhouse, the studio, and I'm looking at this guy act. Now why'd you do it? Look why'd you have to go and do it? And I'm looking at him and I can't, I can't believe that I'm listening to this. So I just thought every time he talked, the only reality was that I was smiling at the way, you know, I mean. So when Mitch came, he, he looked at some of the dailies. He goes, you're doing a lot of smiling there, Jiminy Cricket, because I wore his hat and he called me Jiminy Cricket. I go, he want me to do You know, but um, I, had, I had a really good time with those guys. I mean, of course, I had to wear lifters big between those two guys, you know. And Howard Hawks, you know. And, uh, Howard Hawks. Yeah. Howard's it? How was he to work with? He uh, he was his own guy. Nobody told Howard what to do. You know, he'd go. Hello, and welcome to a special discussion episode of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And tonight, we are going to be, instead of discussing a film that we've just watched, which is related to the title of this podcast, we're going to discuss a list uh, that uh, actually I stumbled across when I was online. And it's basically the top 20 films of the Hollywood actor John Wayne uh, as rated by IMDb. Users. So this is the top 20 films based on IMDb average. We're not going to do a lot of background because uh, this is not a, a career retrospective, really. It's really just an analysis of this particular list. So we're not going to do a lot of background, but I'm going to briefly go over the list. Uh, I would go over the the, uh, the the algorithm that IMDb uses to rate films, but they famously uh, keep it a secret so people can't cheat the system, or at least they used to. The way that uh, the 
that it breaks down at number 20. Hello, this is Max. I'm going to cut in for just a moment. We didn't do this during the course of our podcast on this John Wayne retrospective top 20 discussion, but I just want to say that John Wayne was born Marion Robert Morrison on May 26, 1907, and he died on June 11th, 1979. He started out in the silent film era and continued working well throughout the talkies, as they were called when they made the switch. It's a long career, long life, interesting life. And I, but I just wanted to kind of jump in and, and mention those dates. Uh, and that's all I got. Here's the discussion. Is uh, 1971's Big Jake coming in at uh, 7.1. So this is a, a later film of Wayne's that I have seen, uh, but it's been a long time. Uh, it, uh, it was very popular. He he, he uh, rode around with a dog named Dog. I remember that. But that's number 20. Number 19 is kind of a comedy film, comedy action film from 1963 called McClintock. Number 18, uh, a team up of stars, The Sons of Katie Elder from 1965, ranks a 7.2. Number 17 is a big game film, Hatari, which ranks at a 7.2. Number 16 is The Horse Soldiers, which is a John Ford-directed film from 1959. Uh, it comes in at a 7.2. Number 15, 7.3, is She Wore a Yellow Ribbon from 1949, also a John Ford film and part of his uh, Cavalry trilogy. Number 14, In Harm's Way, uh, 1965, 7.3, uh, and that's a World War II film, is number 14. Number 13 is The Cowboys, 1972, 7.4, uh, rather late film uh, in his filmography, but it comes in at number 13. Number 12, his one Oscar winner, True Grit, 1969, uh, which was remade later, uh, not, not too many years ago, actually, uh, but that was his um, last film of the 60s. Number 11, Ford Apache 1948, which was the first of John Ford's Cavalry trilogy, and that's a 7.5. And then the top 10, Babyface 1933, which ranks as a 7.6. Apparently, he only has a small support supporting role, so I guess uh, we could debate whether or not it's actually a John Wayne movie, but it does rank number 10 on uh, the list of films that he appeared in. Number 9, El Dorado, 1966, which ranks at a 7.6. This is a personal favorite of mine. It was um, one of his last films of the 60s. Probably one of his five, six, seven last films. Uh, but yeah, a personal favorite of mine. Who's it directed by? Uh, directed by Howard Hawks, my, my favorite director from that period. Number eight, uh, from 1976, The Shootist, John Wayne's last film. Maybe an interesting discussion topic would be whether or not it's the best last film by a performer of, uh, of any of any kind, um, but it was his last his last movie. Uh, number seven, Red River, 1948, ranking 7.8 uh, score, uh, also a Howard Hawks directed film, considered by many to be one of Wayne's uh, top two, perhaps two performances. Number six, 1952, The Quiet Man, another John Ford film, um, but not a Western, uh, more of a film about uh, Irish culture, really. I mean, there's a drama story behind it, but it is about an, uh, someone of Irish descent returning home. Um, I don't know if one would call it a drama or comedy, but um, 
it is a famous film. It was a perennial problem of Ford to confuse the two. That's right. Right. That's right. Uh, The number five is not really a Wayne vehicle. It's more of a vehicle for everybody. And that's The Longest Day, which is a uh, retelling of the D-Day invasion. And and until Saving Private Ryan, easily the definitive retelling. And it it comes in at a 7.8. So that's that begins the top five. Number four, Stagecoach from 1939, a film that has been reviewed on Max and Jason Watch a Movie, which we both rank very highly. And and it scores a 7.9. Number three, The Searchers from 1956, which is uh, also a John Ford film. And probably I I would go out on a limb and say that... um, among movie fans, just fans of cinema, whether they're John Wayne admirers or not. Uh, And for anybody who is a John Wayne admirer or not, this film probably gets higher rankings than most of his other films. There's a lot of directors who were directly influenced by this. They talk about it all the time. They talk about Wayne's performance. They talk about uh, just visually how this film inspired them. Probably a lot to say about that, but it's number three on IMDb. Number two is Rio Bravo from 1959, another Howard Hawks film, which is the the first of what I call the Jail Under Siege films. There's a trilogy of movies that Hawks made that basically have uh, Similar plots and uh, similar characters, but not and similar situations, but not necessarily similar events. And and then number one, the number one movie, according to IMDb voters that stars John Wayne or has John Wayne in it, is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance from 1962. It comes in at an 8.1, one of only two Wayne films that rank over an eight, uh, which would be Rio Bravo and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, a John John Ford film with John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and Lee Marvin as well in a great villain role and shot in black and white despite being made in 1962. So that is the list of John Wayne movies as voted on by IMDb users. And that mysterious, mysterious algorithm that rules us all. I'm going to ask you a question. Jason is more of a student of Wayne than I am. One of the things I've noticed in this list is that there are three major eras of Wayne. I want to say the late 40s, early 50s, the 60s, and then the 70s are his, those seem to be the eras where he really started to break out. Let's see, when did the, so Stagecoach, okay, so 40s too, now that I think about it, uh, I guess. But so we've got 40s, 50s, early 40s even, I guess. 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. This is a huge career. Um, and it's interesting. I'm surprised that Screen Rant managed to, to to do this list and and have something that's kind of defensible. I think. I mean, they're using an algorithm. But what is Wayne's? What do you think is Wayne's best period artistically uh, as an actor? Because there's this moment. And I, I'm sorry to step on you here. Real quick, but I just asked a question. And I'm going to interrupt before I give you a chance to answer. But you know, this happens with with actors like John Wayne, who are not bad actors, but at some point they start to get known for doing a certain thing and then they start doing a caricature of that thing it happened with stallone it happened with bruce willis it happened with arnold schwarzenegger and i think it happened with john wayne you could you could you could make that case that they start just doing the role but what do you think is wayne's period yeah i think probably most people would say mm, i would say the 1950s okay um and the and the reason that I would say that is because, uh, and just to kind of um, just give a very brief overview of his career in, in the in the early 30s, he was more of a B movie actor. He was in a lot of westerns. I'm not even sure if all of them have survived, but he was not really. Uh, yes, he was a western star, but he was not an actor that was taken seriously as as we 
talked about in a previous episode uh, when we reviewed Stagecoach. That was the movie that really put him on the map, not only as a as a major movie star, but also an actor that people looked at that they would want in a movie. Then something happened, and, and this is not talked about a lot in his career. John Wayne did not serve in World War II, yeah. and many Hollywood stars at that time did. And so Wayne was one of the few who was actually available to make movies. And so very much like uh, Steve Rogers in in Captain America, the first Avenger, which is a movie we've also reviewed, John Wayne was kind of the actor that stayed behind and made these World War II films that were kind of propaganda films about the war effort. Some are good, some are bad. Uh, I've not actually seen a lot of them, but I actually think that it was not until Red River in 1948 that people actually began taking him, including his mentor, John Ford, where people started actually taking him kind of seriously as an actor and actually thinking that, you know, that he wasn't just a movie star and he could, he could actually turn in some, uh, some good performances in roles that were not stereotypical. And I think that uh, probably something that will, that both of us will mention is that by far his best performances are the ones where not that he's not playing John Wayne, but where he's not playing the kind of role that John Wayne usually plays, you know, the good guy, the guy that um, is a bit of a rebel, but, um, you know, but he's basically honest and he'll he'll uh, add his gun to any fight against, uh, you know, a town that needs his help or anything like that. But but he had some roles that were a little darker, just really just a handful. But I think most people, including people that don't particularly li- like John Wayne, would say that those are great performances and, and definitely are his best work. I, no, I think that's fair. I actually I, I didn't have a good instinct for that because as, as as I'm not a Ford, I'm sorry, I'm not a Wayne uh, scholar. I, I, I've i picked my Wayne battles pretty carefully, mostly on your recommendations <laughs> over the years. Yeah, yeah. So I haven't uh, I haven't often gone a, a, a astray with the John Wayne film because mostly when I watch them, I, I, uh, I, I like I said, I've gone on your recommendations. I saw the atrocious Green Berets, not on Jason's recommendation. Um, I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, what I'll say is, as a film, it's not terrible what it is is tone deaf and ill-advised because it's basically a world war ii style propaganda film that 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 john wayne made during vietnam which uh, turned out to be a a kind of own goal kind of situation and that it 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 earned all of its criticism it has to be said and so uh as a as a film just purely as a film it's not the worst thing i've ever seen it is the worst vietnam film i've ever seen um i you know i've actually never watched it but but um i've seen from it and i'm very aware that it, it it has to serve as a valuable time capsule of a time where america was both looking forward and, and half of america was looking back and and just trying to make sense of what we were and what we were trying to become and and for that film to come out at that time was um looking back is very bizarre yeah yeah that might be one we should tackle at some point uh for the podcast just to kind of see where it went wrong and what it did wrong and what it did well, right. You know, well, you know, we might be able to get George to join our podcast because he has many stories to tell about his time working with the Duke John Wayne. 
Wow. Jason, I don't think I've ever heard you do your George Takei impression. That's amazing. Um, I felt almost as if he was in the room with me at this very moment. That was actually really good, audience. Uh, uh, if, if you're not familiar with George Takei, well, that, that A, what are you doing wrong with your life? But B, that was a great impression. Uh, for some reason, while Jason just said something about like, while a lot of his colleagues went off to fight in World War II or do something in World War II, John Wayne stayed behind. I had I, I remembered that, but I'm, I'm looking at like a few people right now. I didn't realize Paul Newman. I knew Jimmy Stewart went to the yep. war. Let's see here. Jimmy Stewart seems to have been quite a decorated uh, yes. Yes. Uh, World War II uh, veteran. Alec Guinness. Mm-hmm. He was in. He was sort of in the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve. Let's see here. Uh, I don't know. Marcel Marceau. I don't know who that is. B. Arthur. Oh. She, uh, let's see here. Yeah, she was there. What did she do? I don't know what she did. Mel Brooks was a sniper. No, I don't. <laughs> no, Mel Brooks. I mean, he probably could have slayed people with laughter, uh, but I don't know what he did. But just looking at different people, Hugh Hefner, he must not have been happy. Tony Bennett. Let's see here. Who's this asshole? Leslie Howard. I don't know who that is. Um, probably one of the Howards. Um, Leslie Howard was a British actor, uh, red hair. He was in a, a bit of a character actor, most famous for being in Gone with the Wind. Oh, okay. He, he Interesting. Played, yeah. Clark Gable also joined, speaking yeah. of Gone with the Wind. Kirk Douglas. Paul Newman. What did he do? Yeah, yeah. And the thing is about Clark Gable is that I think that probably cost him because if you if you do the math, he was the biggest Hollywood actor of the 30s. Yeah. He had just gone with the wind two years before the U.S. entry into the war. How many Clark Gable films can you think of from after the war to the time of his death? I mean, very few. Yeah. You know, that um, was something that had an impact on his career. A lot of these guys who did uh, fight in the war, I think some of them even were in The Longest Day. Yeah, <laughs> Um, which is which is on our list. And now you said that you just said I, uh, we're going to probably bounce around a lot, audience. You said that up until uh, Saving Private Ryan, that was the World War II movie. Uh, you want to tell audiences why you why you think that? Well, it's very interesting. I, I've actually I've always had a weak spot for, and I think The Longest Day is the first movie to do this. Hollywood films that try to depict for an audience exactly what happened in his, in in an historical event or a battle. Um, Christopher. Nolan's Dunkirk is a recent example of this that I've, I've seen a couple times that is that, that is really, really wonderful. But The Longest Day is kind of the first attempt to try to do that. Uh, it actually has a multinational cast. If I'm not, if I remember correctly, and I, uh, there are German actors that play yeah, I mean, I mean, German actors that that would have been recognized by Hollywood audiences at the time. Okay, play, you know, Nazi characters, and I mean, basically, if you just look at a list of who's in the Longest Day, it's pretty much everybody. Yeah, yeah. There's a young Sean Connery playing a uh, a young GI hitting the beach. Uh, it, it 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 has virtually everybody in it. it. It's it's kind of the story kind of unfolds as kind of a um, almost an unnarrated documentary with a lots of uh, lots of title cards telling you who the historical figures are, you know, telling you what events are happening. But um, now I I do have to say, I have not seen it since the early 90s. Um, The last time I watched it, I I think it, if I'm not mistaken, it was one of the last movies that uh, I watched with my younger brother before he went to the Navy. It's very long. You know, it's it's an epic, you know, kind of length to it. Uh, But I did, you know, but it's very engrossing. And, and I would say for the time, realistic. Now, obviously, the um, th- that's shifted a bit in terms yeah. of what's realistic. But uh, I, it, it is a great movie, and if you have the time, it, it, it's one worth watching. And then there were a lot of other movies that were made after that. Um, you know, I mean, 
Patton might be considered one of them, but there was also uh, Tora 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 from, I think, 1970, which I, I think is really good. But I mean, if you have a taste for that kind of storytelling, The Longest Day is kind of the gold standard. Okay. Now, what do you think of this Screen Rant uh, list based on IMDb rankings uh, overall? I mean, do you think that, that the viewers at IMDb have their act together or are there things that you would take off and things you would put on? Or what do you think? Where do you think the list goes right, wrong? Uh, and, you know, is this a defensible list? Um, I, I think it's defensible top to bottom. I don't agree with all of it. There's not one part of the ranking that made me arch an eyebrow. Like, what were they thinking? Yeah. My list would probably look very different, but I, but I think that, um, it, let's put it this way. If one is interested whether or not one should trust IMD, IMDb votes, um, when it comes to John Wayne's career, I think this list is pretty defensible that, um, you know, IMDb movie raiders have pretty good taste. Now, I've, I've actually thought that myself. I, I, it seems like, and this is just a gut instinct on my part, that the system is a little hard to game, I think. And mm-hmm. So I think that the IMDb averages sort of match up with box office gross and stuff like that, you know? So like, it seems like a good gauge of what a, the public really thinks about a movie. I think, I right. whereas sometimes when this is especially more true now of say Rotten Tomatoes, you get a sense that it's, that's a critics rating area and the score, well, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. I'm just saying that I think because there was so many efforts to, to game Rotten Tomatoes that they, that they, that they're now airing on the side of like hurting, uh, they hurt them. They hurt their chances of getting an accurate vision of what the public thinks of a film. I think that's my sense of when at last I was really looking. But it seems like a more critical critics corner kind of review. So uh, and so, I, I honestly think that for me, a lot of times the the freshness rating at IMDb, I'm not IMDb, but at Rotten Tomatoes is a good indicator to me whether or not I'll like a movie. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, I I just think that 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 I I do like that that IMDb has a I think it has a pretty accurate read on what the public thinks of films. Is there anything on the list that you would, without question, take off the list? Oh, without question. Well, one of them one of them might surprise you. I I could probably come up with some Wayne films that are better than McClintock. I know a lot of people like it. It's not bad. Um, but but I but but I think that I could I I could think of some that would be better than that. Uh, believe it or not, even though I, I'm going to leave you with a recommendation of this movie, uh, Hatari, uh, which is a Howard Hawks film. Okay, which is a lot of fun. I, I've only seen it once, and I was amazed at how entertaining it was. Okay, but I'm not sure. I would, I mean, basically, what it is, it's kind of it's kind of a comedy, but it's basically big game hunters. They're catching animals, not killing them, mm-hmm. but catching them for the zoo. And they're and they're in Africa, and their job is to go out and catch these animals. So I, I mean, it kind of dates the movie a little bit. Yeah. But, um, but basically, it's about, and this won't surprise you, Max. You know about Howard Hawks. It's about. The movie is basically just about fun dialogue and the relations of these people who have this dangerous job and, you know, the situations they get into, you know, romances and that kind of thing. It's a little silly. I believe Henry Mancini does the score and there's a famous theme that he uses for it. uh, This baby elephant that escapes that they have to capture. Okay, It's kind of dumb. But um, it is entertaining. Okay, okay. There's nothing wrong with 
There's nothing yeah. wrong with the silly comedy. I don't think I'm, I'm fine with that. Well, it, but I wouldn't put it in the top 20. I, I I'm kind of pleased to see it there, but yeah. I don't think I put there another one. Um, the horse soldiers, which is a movie I loved when I was a kid. Uh, I remember my grandmother watching it. And to this day, I'm still, I still think William Holden is a very underrated actor mm-hmm. and soldier stars, John Wayne and William Holden. And they're uh, John Wayne is this cavalry commander and William Holden plays the, the doctor, the medic of the cavalry outfit and they don't get along and and they they have this mission deep into confederate territory i loved it when i was a kid i still remember the the ending very vividly but every time i've tried to watch it in recent years i've never really been able to get into it so so i'm a little conflicted about that one let's see I would knock off and uh, only just because you mentioned this and and and, and it, it seems like a sound criticism. I think I would knock off Babyface. I'm sure it's a great movie, but it's not a John Wayne movie and this is a John yeah. Wayne I, I think that I think that that's a mistake to put on here. Uh, it sounds like a very interesting movie uh, for audiences who don't know. I didn't know about this film at all. It was made in 1933, but it is, it's actually about uh, the hero of the woman is a, a, a character named Lily Powers, and she's sort of exploited by her father. And so this character decides to use her sexuality for her own advantage and basically turns the tables on all of her on on her on on the people who would exploit her. Uh, it sounds like so. It sounds like a really fascinating movie even more so for being made in 1933 um pre-code though pre-code pre-code yeah yeah but uh early barbara stanwick you know who um you know before her turn in the big valley was um big big hollywood actress in the 40s okay but that's the only thing that stands out i I, okay so those are some films you would strike are you satisfied with the top five of this list because i'm not I, i i'm not let's start with number one okay the man who, have you seen the man who shot liberty violence yeah I, I, audience actually this is kind of funny um jason i, I feel like we've done the, this this movie on our podcast jason and i have talked about it so many times I, yeah. and me never having seen it but this year um i i finally uh it, i think it was streaming on amazon this summer and so i watched it and it's 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 a very good movie uh, but i hadn't seen it and it's a 1962 film uh black and white and uh, john ford right yes Many consider it to be his last masterpiece because he died. Well, he might have died like 71, but his last film was like 66. Okay. So this is one of his last movies. Okay. No, it's an excellent film, uh, but you were going to say, yeah, Liberty Valance. Yeah, I, I actually, um, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is indeed a great movie, but I don't, I'm not sure it's even my favorite John Ford, John Wayne movie. Yeah. And um, it's a fantastic movie. It's very thematic. It has great ideas about kind of the manipulation of history, which was an ongoing theme of Ford's. Mm -hmm. And and it's done very, very well here. I I might say top five. I haven't actually made a a list of of what I think are the best John Wayne movies. But I mean, but I have a generic one in my head and I, this would not be number one. And it might even reside just outside the top five. well, I, for me, I think it's outside the top five, too, because I don't actually think there's great chemistry between. So I think it's a good film. I think Lee Marvin and John Wayne are quite good, tough guy and around one another. But I don't actually think, and you might not, not agree with me here, I don't actually think that the chemistry between James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, and yeah. the, the woman who's the lead, I guess the love interest, right? Yeah. 
I don't think that's good. And I don't think that the, the chemistry between Stewart and Wayne is all that good. I didn't, I didn't get that. I didn't like them interacting together as much as I, I like Wayne interacting with other people, you know, in films. You know, I, I, I think I know what you're talking about. And I think that I agree with you, but I would question whether or not that's kind of the point. I kind of got the sense that the female lead in the movie was more, and I can't remember the name of the, of the actress. I can't remember the name of the character, but she was supposed to marry uh, Tom Donovan. I remember his name. That's yeah. John's character. And she was supposed to marry him. And she ended up getting kind of distracted from that. And she ended up kind of attaching herself to Jimmy Stewart's character instead. I kind of feel like that in watching the movie, you feel you kind of end up feeling like she should have ended up with Wayne. And I almost get the sense that, okay, there's a scene in the movie. In fact, it's the first scene in the movie when Jimmy Stewart and his wife and Pompey is his name, yeah. the Strode character, and they're, they're all old, as George Takei would say, grizzled. And they're all sitting kind of together and sitting in silence. And there's this, this um, news reporter that wants to talk to them. And Jimmy Stewart says, you know, we'd like to be alone. And you just kind of get the sense that there's this at least when I, and maybe this is what you saw or what you felt, that there was kind of this feeling of, you know, things did not, there were political reasons for the reason things finished out the way they did. And maybe that's not what should have happened. And that there's guilt, regret, confusion, all these things that we, the viewer, we don't necessarily get to know. But I guess that's, I mean, I, I would not, I would not push back against you. I would just suggest that maybe there's a layer of emotional complexity that maybe I'm reading into it. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if you're reading into it. I just didn't think Stuart was as good as everybody else around him. I didn't think that he worked as well as the other characters. And I don't, know that may have been a directorial decision that, that that might have been trying to play into the subtext that you're you're laying out and and we know that hawks did try and lay out subtext before i, I mean ford 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 tried to lay out subtext before you you might be reading exactly what needs to be read into it i just didn't like stewart in the film and i liked him in other things i just he doesn't work for me in this yeah okay i i I do like him more, but I see what you're talking about. And and actually having this conversation uh, makes me think that I should watch it again. Uh, but I guess that's one of the things a, a great John Ford film will do that. It, it, it'll it'll make you feel like you need to watch it again because you, you know that there's an emotional subtext that you might have missed or been distracted from. But 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 that's something, Max, you and I have talked a lot about how John Ford had, um, even in some of his best films had tonality problems. Did you notice a tonality problem in this movie? Not as much. I don't think I noticed a tonality problem in this one as much as I've seen in other ones. Now, uh, so it was the first time I watched it, so I didn't notice it. And nothing nothing was really glaring at me in this. Right, the right. Way, um, like, I'll, I'll be honest, I would put Searchers before this, but Searchers definitely has this problem where you have this serious brooding drama yeah. of, the, of the Great Plains uh, of the American West. And then for some reason, we'll get a minstrel kind of weird comedy scene that almost is like, why the fuck are jesters in this movie? The minstrel, the the the, uh, the guitar player that you're referring to uh, in the scene that you're referring to in The Searchers, that's Ken Curtis, who played uh, Festus uh, Gunsmoke. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, yeah. I mean, he's fine, I suppose, but it, it, he's in the wrong movie with The Searchers. And I, like I said, I would put The Searchers ahead of this film. I think it would be my number two in a top five of John Wayne. Okay. 
Yeah. That what, what where would you put searchers in the top? Is searchers in your top five? I don't know if it is. Oh no, no, the searchers would definitely be in my top five. It wouldn't, it would not be my number one, but it would be in my top five easily. Look, when the searchers is firing on all cylinders, um, it, it is to be marveled at. I do feel like, and and uh listeners, Max and I, you're you're hearing the fruit of discussions that we've had over probably 20 years that there's that the searchers does have tonality problems that for some reason gets ignored. Um, I don't know why it gets ignored, but but there's there are scenes that are kind of this this kind of romantic subplot that and it's not that it shouldn't have a romantic subplot because the whole idea of Jeffrey Hunter's character being conflicted about should I continue going on this on this quest to to find my my cousin or sister sister I guess yeah uh, because he's been kind of adopted or you know here here's this girl that wants to settle down with me what do I do but I bet he feels like that he's got to go out because he feels like Uncle Ethan is going to kill her so that's interesting but the way that it's executed is sometimes not and feels like an intermission yeah when you watch I mean I feel like that those scenes are like an intermission well yeah they, they don't make much sense to me and I and and maybe they were done in that kind of Shakespearean idea that, that kind of tradition of having some not super related bit of scenery but I think the reason why it gets ignored is because everything around it is so good so Jason sort of was bouncing around in the in the plot of the film and the the movie is the story of a former Confederate soldier returning home to Texas he we yeah. get the sense that he's been something of a bad guy we get the sense that he always he hasn't always been the best brother because the subtext that Jason was talking about is the uh, his character, Ethan Edwards, has clearly had an affair of some kind with his sister-in-law, right? Yeah, yeah. And we get little bits of that. Some people know about it, some people don't, but over the course of the movie, uh, Comanche's raid, the village where Ethan is, uh, the, the home where Ethan is hanging out, and a girl is taken by the Comanches, and she is probably Ethan's daughter with his sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. And he goes out on the hunt to get her back along with a person of mixed uh, ancestry, a half native, half uh, Western, uh, half European uh, guy. And it's an interesting dynamic. It's such a fascinating film because it was made in what? Let's see here. 1956. And it's sort of, Jason and I will have to go into this film in some depth because I always, I get the sense that John Ford was a subtly subversive filmmaker. This film is really struggling with questions of the American West and the history of the American West. Ethan Edwards is sort of our hero sort of not he's an awful racist in some moments and the film doesn't defend this really because its other hero is is a native american and and we get the sense as we watch the film that ethan is is not going to rescue his daughter necessarily he's off to kill her because he's and this is never spelled out but he is so offended by the idea that of what these these guys might these these comanches might do to his daughter and so instead of it's interesting because it, his character is the one who is viewing things he'll have to live with right right, right. It, it's it's such a, a kind of male centric kind of view of the situation but that is why the other character the 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 half Comanche himself I think I can't remember the guy's name but 
he Martin, I think, is his name. Uh, Martin Pauly. Yeah, he goes off because he's friends with the family, and he gets the sense already that 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 Ethan is maybe that's his end game. So they're both on this pseudo rescue mission, but it's a it's a really dark, fascinating, and deep and kind of critical movie. And so sometimes I wonder if Ford didn't interject some of this weird comedy to disguise his ulterior motives. Now he would never, he would never. Now he would never admit to any of this. Anytime. Jason's informed me about this before, and I'll let Jason actually take over here because he knows more about it than I do. Would Ford ever admit to any of this stuff? Yeah, he he would not. John Ford was um, very crypt. Cryptic's not the right word because he would actually play dumb. Uh, whenever um, if John Ford was here, I patch and all, and 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 Max and I asked John Ford, well, you know, what was the subtext of the Searchers? Was it about was it about American colonialism, and was it a criticism of that, and what? kind of character was Ethan Edwards was was he really the girl's father John Ford would have said I don't know what you're talking about the question doesn't make any sense and he would play like he would pretend like he didn't know what you were talking about and that that, that you were drunk uh, when actually maybe he was but uh, <laughs> but but um he he would just 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 dismiss questions like that and and I mean questions from great interviewers people that he respected uh, and he would just pretend like that he just he just um didn't know what yeah what they were talking about I mean in fact actually um uh, someone that died um or a, a very good director that died very recently uh Peter Bogdanovich uh did interviews with several great Hollywood directors from that time including uh Orson Welles and John Ford and Peter Bogdanovich who was very good at interviewing these directors and his his interviews are absolute treasures from that time period but it was Bogdanovich that asked him these questions and Ford just responded like like what are you talking about you know are you drunk kid that kind of thing That's and, yeah. and you just kind of get the sense that Ford did not want to talk about his art at all not not even not a hint nothing he would so I almost used the word cryptic he was not cryptic he would get annoyed like what what you yeah, know I don't even want to answer that question well no that's that's interesting and 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 because by the time Bogdanovich would have been interviewing him, it would have been well out of he would have been well out of any fear of the studio system, you know, saying you can't do this, you can't do that. Because by he was that retired. Point, yeah, he was he, retired. But you know, there's a certain there's a certain integrity to that too, though, because like to me, what this also could say, and again, I, we've got to we've got to kind of read the tea leaves of of Ford's uh, what he said over the years. But maybe he wants to let the films speak for themselves and let people bring their own interpretation to it without necessarily him domineering what the viewer what the viewer sees and there's a certain yeah. I think there's a certain integrity to that now I I don't think that I'm necessarily wrong if Bogdanovich was seeing the same things we are then you know then I think we're on to something about Ford's kind of subtle subversiveness or at least the complex questions that Ford was asking in some of his films well I mean I mean uh, just for listeners I mean uh, you know we talked about um, uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance I mean you know just to go back go back to that for one line and uh, which probably many people have heard and they don't know uh, where where it's from and that's uh you know um when history becomes legend print the legend and the reason that, which is at the end of the film and when when i think about uh john ford's movies that's what i think about i think about 
that Ford is giving us the story that people would have seen. But throughout his movies, the subtext is there if you want to find it. It's there. I think so. That is what made him a great director. You know, look, most of the people that Max and I both agree and uh, that we admire the most, and, and not just American directors, but Akira Kurosawa adored John Ford and his and his not, not necessarily as a person, but as but his directing style, his art. Yeah. And so I think that people who have an artistic uh, eye um, when they watch a John Ford film can find. Subtext and uh, and there, I mean, I I guess this is kind of becoming an uh, an advertisement for John Ford films. Max and I have uh, reviewed one, but there's there's usually a lot to chew on in a John Ford film. Uh, if you want to, if you don't, if you want to see a movie that tries to give you good action scenes with occasional over the top. Uh, I'll say over-the-top comedy. Most people probably wouldn't see as over-the-top, but it certainly feels out of place. If that's what you want, you'll get that too. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Now, I think, I think, okay, so in the top five, I think we're looking for the cream of the crop. I think my number one film, and I'm bouncing around here in my list, it might be, this will tickle your heart a little bit, Jason, to the extent that you have one. Uh, it's, I think it might be Rio Bravo. Really? I think so, because I think it's, it's kind of a perfect Western. It's kind of a perfect film. You know, it's, it's, it, is it the second or it's the second of the series, right? No, it's the first. It's the, oh, first. the first. Okay. Okay. This uh, is the one with, this is the one with Dean Martin you're talking about. Yes, yes, yes. And I, it's my favorite of the jail jail under siege films as you call them yeah uh, and i like all three of them but i think this one is the best maybe of them you i don't think you agree with that but well i don't but most people do and and i think i know why I, I i think the reasons i disagree are subjective and they have more to do i mean even though i've become quite a ricky nelson fan in terms of his music i prefer james Kahn to ricky nelson okay uh, I, I i think that so would you, give, would you give the structure of the of uh, i'm gonna call it the film even though it's three films but it's this it's it's almost the same film in many ways yeah so um so rio bravo which was made in 1959 which was kind of a um, um, believe it or not, it was kind of considered a comeback for Wayne, even though uh, just you know three years earlier he had done The Searchers. But for some reason, at that time, Wayne's popularity was uh, being seen to kind of wane a little bit. You know, you had Gunsmoke on TV, westerns kind of matriculated to the small screen, and Rio Bravo was a big hit, and it it kind of solidified as Wayne in you know in kind it's kind of kind of like a comeback film in his career. And basically, the the, the story. Story is is uh, John Wayne plays uh, the sheriff John T. Chance, and there's a murder that takes place in his town. Uh, unfortunately, the murderer is the brother of the wealthiest guy in the state, uh, who who has no scruples whatsoever. But Sheriff Chance is gonna is gonna arrest the guy. He puts him in jail. the The guy he puts in jail is played by Claude Akins, who many of us remember as Sheriff Lobo. Those those Gen Xers out there that are listening to us will know what I'm talking about. Basically, the jail is gonna be surrounded and uh the the murderer's brother is going to 
basically kill the sheriff and rescue his brother. And the sheriff decides that he's not going to give in. He's only got two people helping him. He's got a, uh, he's got two deputies. One is a, um, the fastest gun in the West. And, and, and people might, might plug into this. He's the fastest gun in the West, but he's also an alcoholic. This would later be used in Blazing Saddles. But it's, it really comes from this, this film uh, where uh, Dean Martin, um, who spent his career pretending to be an alcoholic, um, actually does a great job playing one here. And he has to kind of pull things together to, to try to, to try to defend the jail. There's um, a young kid who rode into town played by Ricky Nelson, who finally decides to throw in with the crew and, and Walter Brennan plays the, the old grizzled uh, deputy who kind of stays back by the jail. And there's all kinds of banter and interplay. And it's really a lot of fun. And it was remade basically twice. Uh, the third film doesn't have any alcoholism in it, but basically it's the same idea. You're holed up in the jail. You, you're surrounded by a posse of villains and you've only got a small crew of, of great gunfighters who are the best there is at what they do, but they all have, and what they do is not very nice. And um, but, but they have all these little problems that they have going on and the odds against them are... are, are the odds are stacked against them. They're amazingly entertaining movies. Rio Bravo, incidentally, is in Quentin Tarantino's top five films ever. Oh, wow. No. Well, I like it. I, You know, you say you prefer James... El Dorado. To, uh, you, you prefer James Caan to... Nelson, I think, I think that's absolutely right. But for me, the key relationship isn't the that person. It's the it's the Wayne drunk pairing, and, and Dean Martin is so good. Which isn't to say Robert Mitchum isn't good in in when he when he takes a turn at it. Who does it in the third one? I mean, who does it in the other version? Uh, in the third film, the uh, Wayne's partner is uh, Jorge Rivero, Mexican actor, but he's not an alcoholic. But it's uh, but it's the same dynamic, and then you also have the the third guy who's young, and so. But um, Rio Lobo, that third film, uh, is Hawks trying to uh, compete with uh, the Wild Bunch because there's a lot. You know, there's a big stunt early in the film, and but but it ends up in the jail, you know, towards. The and, uh, but um, El Dorado is is a lot closer to Rio Bravo, except that in, in El Dorado, Robert Mitchum is the sheriff, the alcoholic, and John Wayne ends up being, you know, agreeing to be his deputy to kind of to kind of bring him along. So it's the same relationship, yeah, yeah, but a different power dynamic, which you know subtly makes the film feel a little different. The action scenes are different. It's kind of an interesting study in how you take uh, the plot of a film and then melt it down and re kind of recast the story and make it different enough that even though it is the same movie, yeah. um, it doesn't feel like the same movie. Well, you and I have talked a little bit about this phenomenon with Terminator 1 and Terminator 2. Yes. They're yes. the exact same movies, you know, even down to the same action beats. But if you if you tweak the system just enough, you get almost a new movie out of it. And uh, so, audience, you could watch any of the of the of the jail under siege films and come away enjoying yourself. But that's my favorite, I think. And it's largely because of the Dean Martin uh, and John Wayne chemistry. I think it's great. Um, well, I, I do believe I do believe and I, I could be proven wrong wrong but the john carpenter he did the assault on um, the priest the the movie about the assault on the precinct yeah assault on precinct whatever whatever i Third couldn't day. remember the number I, I was hoping that you would remember uh, i don't that is specifically a a um a, 
a kind of channeling of the jail under siege movie. Okay, okay. Because because Carpenter loved Howard Hawks as well. Yes, yes. And that shows and and all almost all of uh Carpenter's work at shows actually. No, I mean well he read he remade one of his movies in the thing. So yes, yes. Uh Assault on Precinct 13 is the name of the Yeah. Well see and I've not I've never actually watched that film. I have never actually watched it either, but here I'll read the poster to you all. White hot night of hate, assault on precinct 13. The gang that swore a blood oath to destroy precinct 13 and every cop in it. It's not a really good tagline. Yeah, but you know, but I mean, that kind of sounds like Rio Bravo because you only have, uh, although in this case you have like, you have three yep. four, and a big posse of, uh, of villains. They're all very good at what they do, but um, they're outnumbered. outnumbered. Um, you could also, I mean, but see, also doesn't that sound like the first Avengers movie? Yes, you know, yes, yeah. Five of us against an army, but we're really good. So I, I like, I mean, to me, um, I, I'm very glad that we're kind of lingering on the uh, jail under siege movies because actually um, El Dorado is the movie that kind of got me into John Wayne in the first place. And yep. uh, I mean, I mean, I was disappointed a lot because I thought, wow, this guy's movies are great. And I, I kind of hope, I kind of expected that all the movies would kind of feel like El Dorado. They don't, and, though. And they don't, and they don't. But, um, you know, I mean, these are these are really fun movies. And I think actually, if I was to pick movies from the ones that we're talking about, that a modern viewer who just wanted to see kind of um, action in a very realistic way, action heroes, uh, you know, facing down. I, I shouldn't use the word realistic, but what I guess what I'm trying to say is Dean Martin is an alcoholic mm -hmm. saying like, you know, it's not just Roy Rogers saving the day. Yeah, absolutely. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. I think, I think that people should definitely, uh, I'm happy to see that at least two of the, of the, of the, of that trilogy yeah. here. And I think, I actually think I would bump El Dorado into my top five too. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that as well. So here audience, uh, this might change in, in a year, but here's my, here's my top five John Wayne films. I'm going to go Rio Bravo, True Grit. Let's see here. Where's that other one? El Dorado. I'll be my number three. Red River and The Searchers. And at six, I would probably put The Shootist. That is a fantastic list. I oh, I I cannot, I cannot, I cannot really disagree with that. See, but it's interesting about the criteria because if if we're talking about a great John Wayne movie. My list might look different. Uh, and by the way, Kirk Douglas talked about this. He said, you know, th there is such thing as a great John Wayne movie. That, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should compare it to a great movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. If I was making a list, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess that you, um, you talked about that Babyface should be taken off because it may be a great movie, but it's not really a John Wayne movie. Yeah. If Stagecoach is not a John Wayne movie, which one could make that case? He's definitely the star, but it's an ensemble cast. Yeah. Then Stagecoach, if it if it's not a John Wayne movie, I wouldn't put it at number one. If it is a Jane a John Wayne movie, I would put it at one. And I said this when we reviewed it. I actually think that um, it is so foundational to the Western as art in terms of acting, in terms of story, in terms of subtlety. It's kind of the movie that showed the way in, in kind of making the Western, showing that the Western could be more than just good guy saving the day against the bad guys and actually having real 
character development. I think I think Stagecoach is the best film on this list, but I don't think that's what we're talking about. We're talking about kind of rating John Wayne movies. I think I, I think that's I think that's it. I I I love Stagecoach. It's it's one of my favorite westerns of all time. I I think it has to be. Yeah, but it's not a it's not so it's not a John Wayne movie. Yeah, I mean I mean in fact, well, he he doesn't get top billing as yep. we pointed when we reviewed it. I can't remember her name, but the actress does. Yeah, because uh, John Wayne was not a star, like or he was not a major star. He people people would have known who he was, but uh, he was not a leading man in a you know in a big film. So if I my favorite John Wayne films, my number one. And this is very subjective. It's very, very subjective. But but I think that I would go with it because actually uh, a lot of the great John Wayne films, we can find some flaws in. No, but I don't want to say El Dorado. El Dorado, if you get me on the right day, it might even be my favorite movie. But I would never say that it's the best movie ever made. So... Uh, I've got to keep that as my subjective favorite. I I would probably rank them this way. I would say number one. I would I would probably say you know my number it might be True Grit. Okay, it might be True Grit, and it was your number two. So I mean we're not far off. Uh, we're not far off here. But here's why I'll say that because even though there are other Wayne films that do some things better, True Grit's flaws are more forgivable. And I think that it's it's well done. It has the best location shooting of any Western I've ever seen. Because instead of Monument Valley, which I love, True Grit is shot in, I think, Wyoming or Colorado. Yeah. And you have these, you know, the trees, you know, and they're, and they're just kind of turning, you know, for fall, you know, these yellow leaves and mountains and 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 great terrain some of the great the best location shooting i've ever seen um it's a very except for a few very important changes it's a very um accurate uh, translation of the novel in terms of dialogue it's almost word for word i look i get that glenn campbell is not a good actor i get that kim darby is very annoying but somehow it all works. John Wayne is, is, is great as Rooster Cogburn. There's a lot of great lines in it. There's a lot of great action scenes. And you have Robert Duvall as, as the villain. Um, I, I, I really do. I really do love True Grit. Um, so it's a great movie. And it's it's I, I think that for me, it's I may be applying a bit of the perfect film filter here, too. And I, I just think, you know, uh, real Bravo uh, is such a great better. No, totally. Totally. I, but in fact, but true, true grit. Um, um, well, like the remake, I mean, there's there's a great source material that, that it comes from. So you've you've already got well-drawn characters. The thing that saves the, the John Wayne true grit from being just an average Western, though, because it does have some bad actors in it. And, and maybe it's not their fault, whatever it is, that, however they ended up in this situation. John Wayne actually does some pretty decent acting in the film. He's not the John Wayne character in the movie. Movie, yeah, you know, yeah. and 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 the strength of that performance. I mean, it's the only one he ever got an Academy Award for, I believe, right? And and that carries that papers over a lot of the flaws of the film, uh, the location shooting you talk about, and Robert Duvall is another powerhouse in the film. And somehow, I I, I watched an interview with Robert Mitchum a long time ago talking about how to play 
with actors like Wayne. And he thought that one of the mistakes a lot of people made was trying to be as big as Wayne. Whereas Mitchum really succeeds in his outings with Wayne by playing under Wayne, as opposed to not being a straight man so much, but 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 not trying to be as big and bold and maybe brash as Wayne's character is. And so somehow Robert Duvall manages to put in a big performance as well. And it's 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 quite interesting. It's almost it's almost a little bit like uh, the way Lee Marvin will play against Wayne as the bad guy in Liberty Valance. Yes, yes, yeah. And so, but anyway, no, I I, I think that True Grit is the number one is, is 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 a great choice. But go ahead. Yeah, and then and then I would probably say Red River just because. Um, and, and and listeners, you're going to kind of join a conversation that's been going on for a long time. The last thirty seconds of Red River is 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 so unforgivable. But if not for that, Red River would be the best western I've ever seen. It's absolutely the case, and that's why I put it so. That's why it's so. It's it's at number four or five wherever I put it. It's that and the Searchers are so close to being perfect films. Yeah. And, and 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 those are. I mean, look, he's great. He deserved the Oscar in True Grit, but his performances in these two films were better. Red they River were. And- they absolutely were. Yeah. No, he should have been nominated. John Wayne should have been nominated for both Red River and The Searchers. But Red River audience, you know, you're gonna punch the screen in the last thirty seconds, uh, but. <laughs> Up until that moment, you're going to be like, this is the most amazing Western I've ever seen. If not for the last, the the, the end, it would have been my number one on this list, you know. Oh, I, I mean, and, and and I want to emphasize the last 30 seconds, because right up until the the last 30 seconds, even the moment when he, uh, when, he uh, when John Wayne tells Montgomery Cliff to draw, you know, won't anything make a man out of you? And then he, he starts shooting at him and moving towards him. And it's editing masterpiece, close up of Wayne, close-up of Cliff, close-up of the gun, you know, Wayne's motion towards him. It's absolutely masterful and then suddenly everything just kind of falls apart and audience we won't say more about that because we want that joy to be as new and shocking for you as it was for us and it is every time we watch the movie so what's next what's next next for me would and actually i would be tempted to put this higher i i would actually and i'm the reason i'm tempted to put it higher is because it doesn't really have any flaws except that one could say that it looks like a tv movie but the shootest i think the shootest is um very emotional movie and not just because it's the perfect blend of story and actors last hurrah and a movie about the end of the West Uh, because the very first scene in the movie it's 1901 and Queen Victoria just died Uh, Queen Vic just died you know he he does you know it's like it's one of the first one of the early scenes and there's kind of this idea that Queen Victoria she was she was the queen of, of Great Britain through like 70 years almost the entire 19th century and now here we are in 1901 she dies and not only is the 19th century dying not only has queen victoria died but this old way of doing things the, the gunfighter is also and, and this is a theme that was also touched upon in the wild bunch which john wayne was not in we're not going to talk about but um but the shootest has it, it has a very powerful thematic quality to it it has a very its plot is beautiful in its simplicity it has great performances and and i have no complaints about it I don't Oh, even though I just put, I just ranked it below The Searchers and I ranked it below um, Red River, The Shootist delivers more consistently than either of them. And, and and if I think about it, I might actually put it above them. The Shootist is directed by Don Siegel. Ah. 
who um who, who we'll talk about in a later episode of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I I I like it a lot. Ron Howard, Lauren Bacall. Um, there's kind of a it's a movie, it's more about death than it is about love, but it's got both. Yeah. Um, you know, it, you know, anybody who either hasn't seen it or maybe you've seen it and not watched it in a while, I would suggest anybody go back and watch it. it it's really a, a marvelous, beautiful film. Um it, cheaply shot, yes, it does look like a TV movie, but but a glorious TV movie, if that's the case. I mean, it's it's really wonderful. I thought it was a TV movie. Um no, it's not. No, it was a big screen don siegel did john wayne know he was dying did he know this was going to be his last movie you know it's interesting because the stories are because um the film has jimmy stewart as the doctor Mm -hmm. has um it has a lot of old-time western actors you know who who kind of agreed to be in the film just because they felt that it was i mean everyone knew wayne was not doing well he had had a lung removed i'm not sure what year but years before he had had a lung removed hugh o'brien appears in it richard boone who who we ran into um uh before you know in in our discussions this might have been his last film i think said that before yeah i think richard boone was not long for this world either yeah but 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 if i'm not mistaken because i think this was a fairly low budget movie yeah Stuart, richard boone harry morgan john carradine who plays the undertaker they uh, and maybe even lauren bacall they were not well paid well, I, I, John, 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 I said, John, 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 uh, uh, <laughs> right. for this film, John, John. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, they were not they, they, they were not well paid. And actually, I think Jimmy Stewart, now see, you, you were talking about Jimmy Stewart, um, that you didn't like his chemistry with Wayne in um, uh, Shot Liberty Valance. I think in this film, it's a little bit different because Stewart plays the doctor as kind of, he likes Wayne's character, uh, John Bernard Books. Uh, he, he likes him a lot, but he when he discovers that that he has terminal cancer he becomes very aggressive like he has he has no bedside manner it does vanish doesn't it yeah and uh and i think i think both of them are just great in this and uh because you know there's this moment where wayne uh wayne's character when he finds out that you know he's like uh can't you cut it out doc and jimmy stewart I, I, i'd have to gut you like a fish and um like uh, uh, i you know the dialogue's very good it is based on a novel which i've not read i haven't and, and I, I suspect the novel is better than than the movie even uh, just just based on what i know of the ending which i won't say anything right now in case people listening have not seen the movie because you should watch the movie I, I i think the shootist is wonderful i would recommend it to anybody if you've not seen it in a while you should see it again like you should go back um and and you know i mean now that we've had a lot of modern westerns that are great classics like Unforgiven, all of us are in a position to kind of look, you know, rewatch Westerns and kind of decide what the great ones are. Max and I have been doing this for years, talking about what the great Westerns are, uh, what the one, you know, the ones that, that kind of fall short. I I, I would say that this one um, deserves uh, to be rated very highly. And then, you know, those are all objective choices. Just because I love El Dorado, it's going to be at number five, even though really, if on the right day, it's my number one. And not just Western. I love El Dorado so much. I am, um, um, I, 
So, I mean, if anybody spends any time watching Quentin Tarantino interviews on YouTube, which is movie fans, and since you're obviously movie fans for listening to this podcast, you should, because Quentin Tarantino is willing to talk about any movie. He says that um, when he was single, when he was a young man, when he would date a girl, he would he would show her Rio Bravo because he... he he thinks of Rio Bravo as a hangout film. It's the it's a kind of movie that you watch because you love the characters so much you want to hang out with them. And so any girl that that he dated who didn't like Rio Bravo or didn't like the characters, that would be an immediate disqualification. End, disqualification of, of 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 dating her any further. And um I, I I guess I wouldn't say that about El Dorado, but I love those characters so much that if I really just want an afternoon of escapism revisiting the world of El Dorado and watching those characters just banter back and forth is might be my favorite recipe for escapism. Well, it's it's a great recipe. One of my recipes for that is the guns of Navarone these days. That's a it's not it doesn't have the banter, but it's one of my favorite just kind of whew, this is this is a this is a nice little way to in terms of in terms of in terms of drama, dialogue, action, everything. I know we're we're in agreement on that. I've watched it in a while, but it is a go-to. Now we were just talking about uh, Richard Boone, who was who made an appearance uh, in the Shootist, and we were wondering if that was his last movie. It actually wasn't his last movie. Okay, he lingered on until around 1981 in the film industry. His last movie is The Bushido Blade, where he played Commodore Matthew Perry. But he had a role in the TV movie The Hobbit, and do you know what role that was? Can you guess? No. Oh my God! You have a guess. Oh, well, I know it wasn't Gandalf because uh, that was John Huston. That's, ex- that's exactly right. Thor and Oakenshield? No, that would have been a good one. I mean, he actually would have played a great Thor and Oakenshield in real life. Yeah. He was Smaug. Wow. I think I, that's a, I think that's a great choice for him, actually. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, because Richard Boone, and which you know, this wasn't necessarily you know because because I mean, it wasn't necessarily something that he played often in his career. Because actually, I think that because I mean, he was in Have Gun Will Travel. Like, I mean, he was kind of a Western, you know, kind of kind of hero mm-hmm. in his career. Um, I don't know if it was Ombre. I mean, I, I'm not super familiar with his with all of his career, but I mean, you know. I kind of wonder if um, his his turn in Ombre as the villain didn't kind of give him a new, uh, uh, you know, kind of typecast role as the really nasty baddie yeah. uh, because he plays that role in The Shootist as well. Yes, he does. It's almost like Grimes survived. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Um, yeah. But no, Richard Boone sounds like kind of an interesting guy. He was a college student. He was a boxer and a painter and he was an oil field laborer. He was actually the guy that Elmore Leonard wanted to play Ombre. Really? That's who he wanted, yeah. But, you know, Paul Newman really knocks it out of the park and actually looks a little bit more like the character from the book. But, yeah. But, you know, know, to defend him, I I actually think that um, Richard Boone, the way that he carried himself before Ombre, I could have seen that. Oh, yeah. His performance in Ombre was so kind of career-changing that it was hard to see him as anything else after that. Yeah. 
since Richard Boone was brought up, he played uh, General Houston in uh, John Wayne's The Alamo, which we should probably mention just because um, 1960. Uh, 1960. We, we probably should mention it is it is good that it is left off this list. It's not a bad movie, but it is not a great movie, and it has it has lots of problems. It was a flop. Oh, was it? Yeah, I don't know if you knew that. Um, so John Wayne made Rio Bravo, and which was very very popular and very successful, and he. He used the momentum from that the very next year he wanted to make the definitive movie about the Alamo and he wanted to direct it which he did and he wanted to play Davy Crockett and 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 he did it's a it's an epic movie it's large it's it's widescreen they built an Alamo which is still there today by the way abandoned and and, and there's some spectacular uh siege scenes in the movie I, as a kid, I adored it. Did you really? I no, no. When I say as a kid, I mean like when I was like nine. And so when I was in middle school, I asked for it for Christmas because I remembered it being great. And I, I had it on VHS, and I was so disappointed because it was so slow. The dialogue was was clunky, and and, and even in middle school, like I noticed that, and I wanted to like it, and I the dialogue was clunky, and and the performances are not all uniformly good. Well, I'm going to tell you something right now. I thought the Alamo was trash and I've always thought it was trash. Really? Yes. And you're probably like, well, how, how, how could you even come to that conclusion? And I got two, two magic words for you, Jason. Fess Parker. Oh. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but that is the... That Alamo treatment is the is for me the definitive Alamo uh, treatment, and since it didn't have Fess Parker and I think Buddy Epson, uh, I think yep, yep. I, I just I, I couldn't be bothered, and and the <laughs> Fess Parker Davy Crockett saga. <laughs> I can't I can't argue I can't look Fess Parker is Davy or excuse me yeah Fess Parker is Davy Crockett no argument there that will never change. Um, now when I was a kid I had. So my family and I, we used to go to the Smoky Mountains a lot. And uh, on one of my last trips there most recently, I just noticed that we had been stopping at one of the sets for the that old Disney Davy Crockett show. The cabin's still there. Okay. For years, for years when I was a kid, I was actually probably my son's age. And I would go and I would get like a replacement coonskin cap. And I get like the fake musket that you could get at uh, tourist trap stores in the Smoky Mountains. But I, I thought that those were so much more exciting. And and better acted with better sets and they were on studio than the fucking Alamo directed by John Wayne in 1960. So um, a, a very interesting uh, kind of funny little vignette uh, because of uh, for political reasons. John Wayne and and folks, Max is quite right. John Wayne is a great actor. Him playing Davy Crockett is kind of a head scratcher. Not as bad as him playing Genghis Khan. I don't know if we get to that, but it's kind of a head scratcher. But his original choice for Jim Bowie was Charlton Heston, who declined because at the time Heston was a liberal Democrat and he was opposed to John Wayne's conservative Republican value. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, now, that, that would have been an interesting pairing because Heston was a big man and and uh, Richard Widmark, who plays uh, Jim Bowie, is not a big man. And um, I, I, I actually like Richard Widmark. I just think that there's, there's scenes in the movie... Um, and I don't want to linger on the Alamo. It's not even on the damn list, but I, I, I'm not sure that I like him even as Jim Bowie. I mean, and Lawrence Harvey as, as, Tra as Colonel Travis is very irritating. I, I, I like the final battle scene a lot. 
yeah, yeah. No, I, I could I could get on board with that. It's a long ass movie with a lot of uh, with subplots and kind of kind of political dialogue that that kind of dates it. Uh, it, it, it is well photographed, um, but it's it, it's not on this list, and I think there's good reasons. Is it very good history? I seem to think that I, I seem to remember you saying that as history, it's not great. It's really terrible. It's really really inaccurate. I I, I mean actually the Ron Howard film is probably the most accurate okay. but he, there was a t i mean and, and and folks i i actually i like the story of the alamo it's something i've always been fascinated with you know it kind of like my fascination with the titanic i just i kind of like this kind of last stand kind of kind of thing but uh you well, know last, let me try, I guess. Yeah, well i mean you know just a tragedy you know tragedy where you know these people are all going to die uh there was a tv movie in the late 80s uh that is also more accurate that has um alec baldwin brian keith as as davy crockett that is that is a and raul julia as uh santa Ana. And okay it, it's a lot more accurate uh, john wayne's alamo is not accurate um and probably only worth watching if you're interested in either john wayne or the alamo um i i would not recommend it to a casual viewer no, but really- i would play Sam Houston. That's, I mean, I'm talking about the Alamo all this time. I only brought it up because we were talking about Richard Boone. No, I, 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 I know I wouldn't recommend it either, but it is an interesting thing. And I'm happy to see uh, it's not on the list at IMDb. It scores a pretty low 6.8. The Alamo does. Yeah. That's and, not- I would score it's not look it's you know I would not say it's terrible yeah but you no know, um you know it's but but I think that you do group it in with those those Hollywood epics from that period that were intended to make a lot of money and didn't because it didn't it lost money and and Wayne's career kind of floundered there in the early 60s for a, a short time gotcha well that that I mean that seems like we've covered a lot I don't know if there's anything else you want to put a stamp on here before um, we close out the show here there's only um, we've mentioned some of the lower films. There's only, I think, maybe two more that I might want to mention. Okay. Let's see. One as um, just kind of an interesting thing that I would just kind of The Cowboys from 1972 is is a good film. It's very dated. Um, it's not a politically correct film at all, uh, but it's got uh, it's got great villains and, but, and and is very entertaining. But 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 um, probably the great Wayne film that we didn't mention and that neither one of us put in the top five, but what but might but might be a um a candidate would be Ford Apache. I, I was thinking that and it doesn't make my list and I, I think it might not make my list for the same reason it doesn't quite make your list. I don't think it's a John Wayne film. Mm. It's 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 a John Ford film with John Wayne in it. Yeah, well, yeah, because Henry Fonda is the is the main character. Yeah. And and for me, um and I'm not I'm not discount Wayne is huge in the movie, but the film is much more about the story than a, than a character he plays in it, you know. Which which is part partly what makes it a great no, folks, it's a great movie and you should watch it. And maybe and maybe that's something, you know, this this list is about John Wayne, but we've talked a lot about John Ford. And, and so maybe a good place to close on is Ford Apache because because John Wayne was this 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 actor that that worked with John Ford so frequently. And John Ford did keep coming back to him. But Ford Apache is really the Custer story with all the names changed. It was about this time. And, and so, uh, folks, this will be a recommendation. You should watch this movie right around the same time hollywood made they died with their boots on with errol flynn which was a romantic uh, kind of a romanticizing of the custer story because at that time in our nation's history custer was still kind of seen as you know romanticized as a hero Ford apache is the custer story without custer's name 
But the character who is the Custer character, which is Lieutenant Colonel Thursday, played by Henry Fonda, is Custer, and he's kind of a tragic villain, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, here, let, and, let, 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 me, let me recreate a, a, a scene from the past. So, 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 Mr. Ford, what are you trying to say with Ford Apache? Um, is this a subtle criticism of the legend of, of, of Custer? I don't know what you're talking about! There we go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, just a, an interesting an interesting movie experience that, that I guess we can kind of close with. When I first saw Ford Apache, my, my reaction was very similar to Red River in that I was kind of, I really admired, even though, okay, folks, Ford Apache also has some comedy scenes that, that kind of weigh the film down. It, it has the same problem as The Searchers. But in the end, Henry Fonda's character orders this attack on this uh, on this um, Native American tribe and John Wayne's character tells him that it's crazy. He refuses to go along with it. He absolutely just, just basically um, commits mutiny on the field of battle. And so Wayne's character survives and Henry Fonda and all of the other soldiers are killed like at Little, at Little Bighorn. And then when I first saw this movie, I thought it was a betrayal because in the last scene, John Wayne's character, he comes back from the battle. He's surrounded by all these newsmen and they, you know, um, what happened out there? And I think today we would want John Wayne's character and I think this is how this movie would be made today and this is how people would behave today but we would want john wayne's character to say i'll tell you what happened this was uh this was murder pure and simple it was it was egotism it was uh it was a mistake men died for no reason and instead in the movie john wayne's character turns around and kind of gives this they died with their boots on speech and he looks out the window and there's kind of this there's kind of this um superimposed on the window pane the visions of all these heroes dying and when i first saw the movie i thought oh that's terrible that's terrible that's a you know why did you tack a hollywood ending onto this movie but then I saw a, um, a, an interview with Martin Scorsese about John Ford. And Scorsese said, you know, that, you know, everyone complained that, that John Ford never told us the truth. You know, that, you know, that, 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 that it was all, you know, propaganda or whatever. And he says, but actually, he just told us the truth. And I don't remember what film Scorsese was talking about. But one of the things that I realized about that scene, the final scene of the movie, is that Ford was doing two things in kind of a, you know, pop culture, give the people what they want kind of way he was giving the they died with their boots on ending but he was also telling the truth because the fact of the matter is is that custer's death was not custer's decision to to attack the the native americans was not controversial and so what so what ford is giving us is he's giving us this character who at this time period in 1876 a character that exists in that era okay suddenly makes a decision that you know what i knew these men i you know i i fought beside them, I ate beside them, I laughed with them, I drank with them. I am not now, I, I'm going in this moment, I'm just going to. I'm just going to say they died with their boots on. Yeah. Some people would do. And so I guess I kind of feel like the ending of Fort Apache is a lot more mm. real than an initial viewing might, might deliver to somebody. Well, it's interesting because I didn't actually, I didn't have a problem. I, to me, I thought that what Wayne was doing in that moment, while not intellectually honest, was emotionally understandable. And I thought 
Well, he could blast the colonel yeah. you know, and, and talk about how he got all these people killed. But it, for me, in that moment, the rest of the critique of what the, the colonel does is all there beforehand. It's in the motion when Wayne thrusts his saber into the dirt. If, if, if I think that's what he does. Or I might be thinking of a different movie. But anyway, he doesn't follow the... No, uh, um, oh. I think it's his glove. It's his glove. Yeah. And, and the whole film he's fought with the Thursday yeah. about his decisions and his policies. And it's only in the last moment before he is about to engage in something foolish and stupid and, and morally questionable that, that that Wayne's character is like, no, I've, we're, I'm done. I've had enough. But I got that he was just defending the memory of those men and he didn't want their families to hear that they were led into a stupid, uh, a stupid death. Because I also got the same sense that every time some friend of that character, Wayne's character would say what happened and he would be like those guys died for nothing you know yeah in his yeah. private moments but he didn't have it in him to say that out loud to a reporting public but again that's Ford and his preoccupation with storytelling in the media yeah. and how we process stories and what's interesting and I think back to what Scorsese said well he just told us the truth this movie tells us the truth yeah tells us the Custer story the way that it is supposed to be told but it but it also at the end kind of has the we could call it a cover-up yeah i mean early a cover-up but it's a massaging of what happened yeah and so the movie is 100 start to finish honest yeah no I, I i agree so i didn't have that problem i could see why some people might say well I, I i could never get behind anybody who would say that that was a propaganda film sort of defending custer no it's Not definitely that, it, it because it's start to finish critical of custer yes and it wasn't it wasn't this movie actually that made me think that ford was a lot more subversive and artistically interesting uh but this film certainly adds to that understanding for me uh that ford was doing something a lot different than a lot of his contemporaries were doing yes and and yeah so this is also i guess this our john wayne uh retrospective has also become a john ford uh, retrospective which is which well, is reasonable well but 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 very interesting because actually um folks before max and i started i actually did a tally of how many films on this top 20 are john ford films and how many are howard hawks films there are seven john ford films and four howard hawks films so so over half of the movies on this top 20 list are directed by either john ford or howard hawks two of the great directors of that era or any era. So before we go, I've actually got one more question for you and maybe you can shed light on this. Was Hawks's approach to working with Wayne anything like the tyrannical, mean, vicious handling? For John Ford was notorious for bullying Wayne on yeah. set, kind of brutally, it sounds like. And while he, it seems like while Ford utilized the mystique of Wayne's tough guy image, Ford didn't seem to think privately that much of Wayne as a as a as a as another man how did so how did those do you know how those two uh, directors approaches differed um hawks hawks and wayne got along famously hawks got along with most of his actors unless he was competing for the infect for the affections of one of the co-stars he did not get along with bogart for that reason oh really um um well um howard hawks uh, lauren bacall was okay, howard hawks was famous for discovering and he was very proud of this he discovered many female stars and he made them stars.
stars. And he was and he was very proud of that. And Lauren Bacall was one of them. And his first film with Lauren Bacall was To Have and Have Not with Humphrey Bogart. They were paired together. And she paired up with Bogart immediately. And he was very jealous of Bogart, even though they he made another film with both of them. Yeah. Um, he, he and Bogart did not really get along. He, the actors he was most comfortable with were Cary Grant and John Wayne. Okay. Cary Grant for comedy and John Wayne for action. And um, I think Wayne was more comfortable with Hawks because um, when Wayne, look, when John Wayne was not work, John Wayne was a very professional actor. I mean, and everyone says this, that he, he showed up before everybody else and he left after everybody else. He was very amenable and he was very serious about making good scenes and working with, you know, and, and collaboration. He was very into that. But there's kind of this spectrum with when John Ford was on set, he was like a kid, you know, and was kind of dominated. And when Howard Hawks was directing him, um, he was more at ease, but he, he trusted Hawks instincts as most actors did. Hawks was an actor's director because, you know, um, he would shoot a scene. He would say, oh, I don't like that. It's, it's kind of boring. Or, uh, you know, if it was a comedy, it'd be, a, it's, it's not funny. I don't like it. You know, and they would, and they would make up dialogue or they would ad lib something right on the spot. Wayne trusted Hawks a lot, um, kind of got into that process. And Hawks felt like that he, look, Howard Hawks, like Christopher Nolan, like, like, you know, I mean, you go right to Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, these great directors, there's certain Certain actors they like to work with because they have a, like a chemistry with them. And they know they know what they can get from them. They know um, if they ask them to do something, they know kind of what they're going to get. And I think that Hawks was one of those. Like he knew that if he was making an action film, that if he had, he had this towering actor John Wayne, this professional, that um, that Wayne would be amenable to whatever Hawks wanted to do. And Wayne trusted him. But a lot of other movies with other directors, Wayne would get impatient because you know he took the work very seriously. And if he felt like a director just didn't know what they were doing, he he would. You know, he could like I I do know um, in Rooster Cogburn, which is the, a very mediocre but very enjoyable sequel to True Grit with John Wayne and Catherine Hepburn. He he and Hepburn both bullied the young director that made the movie. Oh no! Yeah, which which at that time, um, you know those those two old stars. You know, how are you going to tell them what to do? So I think he was more comfortable with Hawks. He worked with Hawks a lot. I mean, so he he made the three Under Siege Jail movies, Red River and Hatari. Yep. He made movies with Hawks uh, in 20 years. That's actually, if you think about it, that's quite a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I was just I was kind of looking over the, the CVs a little bit. Yeah, I just wondered. I just wondered if, if if it seems like maybe Ford was the only one who was just. I don't know how. I don't know how Ford treated a lot of other actors, but he seems to have treated John Wayne pretty badly. He um, he, he he um Ford was. I, I actually like. I you know John Ford was not uh, a predator like Hitchcock, but he treated actors a lot like Hitchcock. Okay. Um, actually, Jimmy Stewart t- tells a story that I saw that that um, on The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, Stewart went to Wayne and was like, you know, you all said that he was so hard to work with. I- I'm not having a problem at all. And Wayne was like, well, he hasn't broken you in yet or something like that. <laughs> and I guess, um, and, and you can cut this out, but there was this day, uh, remember, you know, Woody Strode played Pompey, right? Yeah, yeah. If I remember Woody, he had Woody Strode in like a uh, uh, overall. I think it was he. I think he had suspenders, but I might be wrong. Yeah, 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 yes, the suspenders. And and um, John Ford uh, 
said to Jimmy Stewart, he was like, uh, so what do you think of the wardrobe? What do you think of Woody Strode? And uh, Jimmy Stewart, a little Uncle Remacy, don't you think? And John Ford was like, all right, quiet, quiet, quiet. Everybody quiet down. Turn off. Mr. Stewart here has just said to me that he feels like Woody Strode's wardrobe is Uncle Remacy. Now, I don't know why he's saying this, if this is some kind of racism or prejudice in Mr. Stewart. But uh, I just wanted you all to know that. And 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 Jimmy Stewart telling the story is like, and I, I I wanted to die. I I wanted the, the the earth to open up under me and just swallow me up. And I look at Duke Wayne, and, and he's smiling like the Cheshire Cat, just ear to ear. And he comes to me and he says, "Welcome to the club." <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, that's crazy. That's funny. And and he would go on, I think, well, no, that's a different actor. Sorry, I think. Let's see here. Who was it? Oh, yeah, sorry. Different actor. I was looking at his Mr. Roberts, which is a is, is a Ford favorite of my audience. Yeah, he directed that, didn't he? Yes. And I starred in, uh, no, I didn't start. I remember. I, remember. I, 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 I had a small part in Mr. Roberts in high school, and uh, I stole every scene I was in. And, and, oh, Bob, oh. and the director, Bob Sizemore, was about as mean as John forward so because <laughs> uh, i because i remember I, I i remember our our english class went to see it yeah. thanks up there that's, that's crazy i did some i did some summer theater with bob sizemore after high school and we were prepping for some show and he was talking about oh who who's what's the oh gosh there's a i can't remember the musical but bob was in it and uh and bob says max Come read the press from this from this play I was in, and uh, I read the play, and it was like uh, I got to the line was it says the performance of Bob Sizemore is worth the price of admission alone, and Bob says stop, read that again. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, that is, <laughs> um, but anyway, but that's a that's a soft spot I have for Mr. Roberts. Audience, uh, do you have anything else you want to add? I think we've covered the ground. I, yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty pleased with uh, with the discussion. It's um, kind of interesting to talk about. I, I like lists, and yes. uh, I think and and in this this era where in the internet and social media, everyone can kind of get their lists out there and you know kind of share their opinions. And you can see what other people think. I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. Well, what I want to talk about next time we do one of these sort of uh, list sickle kinds of discussions, I want to compare three contemporary directors and i want to try to narrow in on if we can even do this if we can even find the best i want to talk about the cvs and the directorial talents of john houston howard hawks and john ford right is there any is there any other is there any other director you think we should put in there i don't know you know i i, I see why you chose those because um they're they're contemporaries um they have some films that have kind of similar themes similar styles um you know some uh, uh between hawks and uh, Houston, there's the noir, um, but then Houston also did the Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a western. Yeah. So there's a lot of interplay, a lot of action, drama, maybe comedy. I think that would be fun. I think I think so too. It would give us an excuse also to kind of just shamelessly watch some great films in in preparation for for such a discussion. Man, that's all I got tonight, buddy. Yep, me too. All right, um, folks. 
hope you enjoyed this this retrospective on the work of John Wayne and the list put together by Screen Rant. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Follow us on social media. You can follow me at The Supper Test. Uh, Anya does our Max and Jason watch a movie uh, on Instagram. And uh, you can, uh, uh, well, you know, the, you know the drill, guys. Share this, share that, whatever. Reach me at lordmovies39 at gmail.com. Fuck you, you guys never do. That's all the news that's fit to print from Max and Jason watch a movie. My Max. Jason, bye. I feel like I'm watching one of those first-person horror movies. I hope I'm not frightening you.